Treating your need for healthcare news, we are NHE. News, views and insider truths from the heart of the healthcare sector. We are the NHE team. I'm Emily. I'm Matt. I'm Ilsa. And each episode, we will connect you to the people behind the UK health sector, sharing insights and innovation. This podcast is brought to you by Evo North, uniting leaders from the public and private sector to collaborate, share exciting innovations and build a stronger northern powerhouse together. So welcome back to the National Health Executive podcast. Um, So today I'm joined by Baroness Laura Finlay, your chair of the National Mental Health Capacity Forum and a professor of palliative care. You've got a wealth of experience in that field. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. Um, and sort of, I suppose that what we're going to talk about today is um, sort of the, the guidance and the advice that can be given to people to sort of cope with this really quite unprecedented and quite difficult time. Thank you. Uh, it is very difficult and I think things are changing so rapidly. What we saw at the beginning was an enormous amount of creativity. People were really fired up by adrenaline in a way. And we saw services very rapidly adapt and take on new roles and staff move around and really, in many ways, unleash the caring person that each professional wanted to be. And they were freed up by some of the bureaucracy and so on and did the most amazing first line response. I think now for the staff, one of the difficulties is that we're in this for the long haul. And that uh, is difficult and it's exhausting. And you've got staff who are already now pretty tired. So I think there's another area that has emerged as we've learned more about this outbreak and about the disease. And that is that there are some members of staff who are particularly at risk. And tragically, we have seen a large number of infections and deaths particularly in the BAME community in healthcare. And we are very dependent on people from all over the world in providing health and social care. In social care, that's been as badly hit as healthcare. And these are people who are absolutely frontline and essential. And so now going forwards, if we have an easing, it's really important that we individualise risk assessments and that we're really quite clear With staff, perhaps the days of political correctness over people's weight and so on have to go because we know that people who are obese are at higher risk. And perhaps we have to be prepared to confront that and say, you are too overweight and you're at really high risk. But the difficulty, too, is that some of the others will then carry if you like, a disproportionate frontline burden. So managing staff is going to be really complex going forwards. The other difficulty, yeah. the other difficulty we've got is that staff are members of our society, our community, they have lost friends and some have lost family to this. Some have had family members who've been really ill and who are very traumatised by having been in ITU, even though they've survived, very traumatised by having a near-death experience, really. And supporting those people as well is a really major task ahead. 
Yeah, it, it's something that we're going to, as you say, there's going to be a lot of quite difficult um, questions and sort of really difficult and different ways of thinking that we have to take into account. Because as you say, this is something that we've seen doesn't affect everyone equally. There are at-risk categories and we've as maybe been in the past a bit blasé to sort of paint everyone the same brush and go, yeah, ev- everyone's very equal and very much can do everything. But as you say, maybe there now needs to be that individualization to protect everyone's safety. At the end of the day, this isn't to criticise or bemoan anyone. It's to keep everyone safe. No, it is to keep, it is literally to keep everyone safe and to remember that they may be a member of staff, but they will have a family. And if they've got children who are dependents, then we actually have a duty to look at them in the broad context because for children to be bereaved is absolutely terrible. It, it is unbelievably awful. And I also think we have to remember that staff members' families have often, the children have been struggling knowing that mum or dad goes out to the front line, seeing what the risk is, and that they have very high levels of anxiety that this virus is going to kill their mum or dad. And those kids, actually, perhaps we should be applauding those children on a Thursday night because they're supporting their mums and dads to go to work. It's not easy. Yeah, and and as you say, that is an area that there's no doubt that there is going to be a a huge mental health strain and knock-on from this across the generation. But more significantly, maybe than any, is those younger children who have, like you say, maybe seen mum and dad on the front line. And the impact of that in such a formative time is something we really do have to think about. It is. And I I mean, in a way, it's good that people have spoken openly. It's good that families have spoken openly about disease and death, that we're not overprotecting children that to bring them up in a fairy tale world where everything's absolutely fine. But it's the harshness with which they've had to confront reality, which is really difficult. On the other hand, For families to have those open conversations, I'm sure in the long term, will have been a good thing. And this virus came kind of from nowhere. You know, it isn't anybody's fault that the virus arrived, but it's ripped through our society. And that's also difficult, having been a society where people felt that they could control things all the time. Now, as the the lockdown decreases, where people are caring for someone who's got learning difficulties, who's had a head injury, um, who may have dementia, who has a condition which makes their thinking more difficult. There's another layer to adapting, and that is helping people understand the change in restrictions around them and relearn a whole skill set that they had before Then they were told that they couldn't go out. So they might have learned how to go to the shops on their own. All of a sudden, they couldn't do that. Now they have to learn what it means to socially distance, keep two meters apart. What are these new lines on the floor in a supermarket and so on? And then how do we teach them about having a face covering? That's really going to be tough. 
No, certainly. As you say, it's maybe an aspect that's not thought about. The narrative has been so key and such a talking point throughout all of the uh, the lockdown and this pandemic. Um, and that's it's been a, a sort of narrative that's been at times difficult to understand for the vast majority of people. So for those that, as you say, who maybe need that additional support as well to understand, it's, it's a significant period of change and change and routine or very key aspects to treatment and to care for these people. It is. One good thing I think that's happened is that we've realised that it isn't that people are vulnerable, it's that they're valuable. Mm. And we've recognised as a society the value of the individual. We've recognised that the young adult with Down syndrome is contributing a lot to everyone around them. It's not a one-way street. And the value of the individual, I think, has been recognised. We've recognised that people with autism have got a skill set that they may have been able to use before. At the moment, they're not able to use it, but we need to harness it again. And then, of course, with older people, the celebration of the E-Day really ex- showed starkly these people risked their lives lost so much at the time for us to have the freedoms that we have today. And we owe them an enormous debt of gratitude. And that debt of gratitude wasn't just on the day. It is to support them and look after them and treasure them as they are in their twilight years as well and not take a dismissive attitude to them. And that's why I think the swing finally to recognise the importance of people who are in care homes has been long, long overdue. In, indeed. And it's supposed to quote the classic phrase, you don't realise you've, you you've, what you've lost or what you've got, sorry, um, until you don't have it. And I think we have as a society come to realise that, as you say, with the freedoms we're so used to, having some of those restricted has realize made us realize this is the thing the sort of this is actually what it could have been without those efforts and we've seen that across the board everything from health and well-being through to those basic freedoms like going out and meeting friends through to also even the environment we've seen a significant change there as well and it has been a a wide wake-up call across the board and through very difficult circumstances but one that could genuinely help us in the future I think now for leaders in health and social care in particular, there's there's a real uh, duty that they have Mm -hmm. to carry forward all of the positive lessons, the things that we've learned from this, not to slip back and hide behind processes which are bureaucratic and stop things moving fast. Uh, And to, to really to keep those doors open to creativity and to valuing all those aspects of life, as you say, our environment that hopefully is now healing. I think leading on from that, obviously, as as you say, we're seeing sort of um, the environment healing and we're seeing this creativity. I think the amount of, as you say, access to innovation and the speed we've been able to get that through without the sort of same bureaucratic process that necessarily has slowed things down in the past I think that is only going to sort of benefit the the NHS and healthcare and social care widely widely going forward. So I think 
from everyone I've spoke to at least, and I presume that's probably the same sort of thing you've seen from your end. I, I, I think I, I think it is, and I think those people who really have felt a vacation, if you like, going into health or social care, have felt freed up to mm-hmm. express that, express the motivation that drove them in in the first place. I think it's been remarkable how more people want to go into nursing, how we've had people sign back on who have previously retired, who feel that they want to help, they've got something to contribute. And then we've seen innovative ways of running clinics, for example. But we've got to make sure that some things never slip back. We must never again have crowded emergency departments, which are real pools for infection transfer, where you've got lots of people in a waiting room. We must never again ignore some of the bizarre symptoms that people present with. Because I think it's taken us a little bit of time to realise that the way that this presented uh, was not just a temperature and a cough, but it had this other array array of uh, symptoms. And so we have to be diagnostically aware the whole time because in the process, it has been easy, I think, in early days in particular, to label things as being attributable to COVID-19 that may not have been. And so we now have got people who have not been treated for some months. So we've got a backlog there that we have to catch up with. But we mustn't catch up with them using the systems we did before. We've got to catch up in innovative ways and keep that innovation going. Yeah, I think, as you say perfectly there, we have got a backlog and there is a need, obviously, to restart these healthcare processes. But if we're going to have this delay and this potential knock-on effect anyway, let's do it right as we go back to this new way rather than going back and rushing back to the systems we knew that maybe didn't work. Yeah, and I, I think I think it might feel kind of initially more secure to go back to what we did before. But let's be honest, a lot of it was falling over. It was clogged up. It didn't work well. And so we have to really recognize that new ways of doing things and delivering healthcare are there and I think we have to be prepared to be quite uh, empowering of patients and their families and carers teaching them more and more what they can do one piece of guidance I was involved in writing was about caring for a dying person at home who may be dying from COVID where you don't have the same number of people going into the home so more of the burden falls on the family and we've learned that families can be taught very rapidly to do things like give subcutaneous injections and a breakthrough doses and so on and they will do it safely and you have to assess the risk in each situation not not say oh we're not allowed to let you do that because of our procedures you have to say no let's free it up we had to free up repurposing of medicines in uh, care homes and in hospices because of the delays in transfer, particularly at nights and weekends of getting medication out to places. Actually, we haven't heard of any problems at all. So if it's worked, let's stick with it. Let's not go backwards. Definitely. And as you say, especially within sort of family situations, 
people can learn very quickly if they're given the guidance and are allowed to do it. And they have a vested interest in doing that as well. These are their loved ones. So if they can help them and support them, of course they're going to. Yeah, and and I think I think what we've seen is that people have really been quite amazing and very creative, and we've seen creative ways in the community that people have made little mementos, things for people to take in into hospital with them, knowing that sadly half of the people who go into ITU they won't ever see again. I mean that's just terribly hard for people, but I do hope we don't forget as a lot of society might superficially appear to go back to normal that we will have now many thousands many many thousands of families and of individuals living permanently with the burden of what this has taken away from them because the person they loved has died and we will have many people many thousands deeply traumatized by their experience of having been so ill i hope they will find every day of their lives is in a in an odd way richer and they appreciate it more because of what's happened and we've certainly heard that in some individual testimonies uh, but we mustn't look sight, lose sight of that value of human life oh absolutely not and i think that's such a lovely message to sort of really round this out with as you say we are we've had a trying time in these past few months and it's been a difficult time and there has been tragedy and loss in that and i think really we owe it not just to as a society but to those that haven't necessarily made it to do good on what has happened and to come out the other side of it better both for society generally but also for as you say those families who have had loss and and it does bring a responsibility on those in leadership positions to make sure that they really do uh, their own bit and th- try to think imaginatively where support is needed and go ahead and provide it, not in a patronising way, but recognising the needs that each person has will be quite different. They will be individual. And that teams need time to build up their own emotional resilience. And going forwards, we need to build up resilience in the whole of our health and social care system. And rather than living in in what has become somewhat of a just-in-time, you know, just-in-time supply lines and uh, a rapidly moving and disposable society, we really do need to look as to whether there are some things that we need to stop doing as disposable and we need to start doing as reusable, re-sterilizable uh, processes where we have an adequate stockpile in reserve and we don't rely on just-in-time supplies as well. Definitely and I think as we say that really gives the, the message no clearer than anything as to how we can learn from this. I think in conscious to to make sure that everything we've gone through it's been so informative we don't want to risk losing any of the the weight or the importance that's said there so i think especially from myself i really appreciate you and i'm sure our readers really appreciate you taking the time to talk to about this laura well i've been delighted to do it thank you for asking me
And uh, I hope that people find that when they listen, that they feel empowered themselves to uh, do what they feel in their heart they really want to do, which is actually help everybody live as well as they can. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Evo North, uniting leaders from the public and private sector to collaborate, share exciting innovations and build a stronger northern powerhouse together. Join the chat on social media using the hashtag WeAreNHE or send us an email via the link on our website. If you enjoyed today's podcast and discussion, don't forget to subscribe or give us a rating on whatever streaming service you're using. Thanks for listening. See you next time.